Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning, and I want to welcome our visitors, Lou and Sharon from Perth, Australia. And uh, they have been traveling around the U.S. the last three weeks, and they came here to Chattanooga just to be with us this weekend. So glad you guys are here. Let's begin class with a prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit, your angels, your presence would be with us. We ask that you will be um, upon all those who love this picture of you around the world and open avenues that it might go forward, that the world will be lighted and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly Biblical Missionaries. And the title this week is Paul, Mission and Message. And the memory uh, text this week is uh, Philippians three thirteen and 14. And it says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And when you hear that, and when we've all heard it, What does it mean to you? What has he not apprehended? What is he forgetting? And toward what is he striving? Well, I kind of uh, expand some of these ideas, and this is those two verses from The Remedy. Brothers and sisters, I have not yet experienced this perfect, total, and complete restoration, but there is one thing I can do to assist God in his plan to heal and restore. I don't lament past mistakes nor grow content with past victories. Rather, I constantly push for the perfection that still lies ahead. I press forward constantly toward the goal of Christ-like perfection, one day to experience the ultimate prize for which God has called me heavenward, the joy of seeing him face to face. Amen. Second paragraph In Sabbath's lesson, it says Paul's 13 letters to the believers applied faith to their lives. He touched doctrinal as well as practical topics. He counseled, encouraged, admonished on matters of personal Christianity, relationships, and church life. Nevertheless, through his letters, his main theme was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what do you think about this idea, these sentences? He touched doctrinal as well as practical topics, he counseled, encouraged, and admonished on matters of personal Christianity, relationships, and church life. Is there a difference between doctrines, practical topics, church life, and personal Christianity? Are they different? Is there a doctrine that is impractical or not practical? Is there a doctrine that does not affect relationships or church life? I won't go through all 28 of the fundamentals in the Adventist church. I did list them in the notes for people who want to look at them. But can you think of any of those that are not practical? That have no practical application to your life? That don't impact your relationships? That don't affect your church life? Now, can they be presented in ways that are impractical? that don't have application? Can they be presented in that way? I'll just pick a couple out and look at. Baptism. Practical or impractical? Applicable to your church life or not applicable? Affect your relationships or doesn't affect your relationships? Well, it depends on how it's presented, right? Can it be presented in impractical ways? For instance... Having some, um, as, as having some power 
other than this uh, symbolic act demonstrating one has already... In other words, the, the, is it presented in a way that the act itself has some power in some mystical, magical way to transform and cleanse you? Do you know what I mean? Rather than just a public symbol of the fact that your mind, heart, and character has already died to self and been renewed to a new life in Christ. Now, if that happens, if you've actually gone through what baptism represents, does that affect your relationships? Is it practical to your day-to-day living? Yet you can't have real baptism without it affecting your relationships and your day-to-day living. But could you have the ritual without it being practical and applicable? Yeah, this this is what I think sometimes people stumble on. Um, How about the Lord's Supper? It's one of the doctrines, Doctrine 16. Can it also be impractical? Again, can it be a ceremony thought to have some mystical power um, that when you eat the bread and and uh, and drink the wine that it somehow has some you know transforming effect from the substance you're intaking? But if you understand the symbols and you recognize the bread is when you ingest into your mind the word of God, and the wine is when you ingest into your heart the character of Christ that transforms you. Does that affect your day-to-day living? It becomes practical, how you live, how you practice your life, and your relationships. Even if you just do the Lord's Supper based on Jesus said to do it, and miss the symbolic importance of it, it just becomes an empty thing. So it's not even just a a misinterpretation, it's just nothing. An empty ritual. So it has no real bearing anymore. Exactly, exactly. How about... The law of God, Doctor 19. We'll spend a, more time in the lesson today on the law of God. But can it be presented in an impractical way? Arbitrary. Keep that one in your mind. We'll come back to it. How about Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary? Doctrine 24. Practical to your life today or impractical to your life today? Affecting your relationships in church life today or not affecting your relationships in church life today? If it's presented as a symbolic system just transferred in physical location from a building on earth to a building in heaven, and Christ is pigeonholed into carrying out the same rituals just in a different location of the universe, it's not very practical. It doesn't have much application. But when you understand it as a symbolic acting out of God's plan to cleanse the true temple where God dwells by his spirit, then it becomes very practical as you recognize the high priest is working through the spirit in your heart and mind to cleanse you from sin. That becomes applicable and practical in your relationships. Well, you can go through the rest of the doctrines on your own and ask those questions, but I'm going to suggest to you, if you have a doctrine that has no practical application to your life, doesn't affect church life, and doesn't affect your relationships, there's something wrong with the doctrine. So I, 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 I'm not quite you know, sure why they, they, they parsed it all out this way, but it seems to me they should have been more you know, in, interconnected. Sunday's lesson asks us to read 1 Corinthians um, 22 through 24. It says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look forward, look for wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of uh, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The lesson actually made an interesting insight. It, It said that because of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, with so many miraculous signs and wonders as they were brought out of Egypt, they came to believe that whenever truth was presented, it would be accompanied by signs and wonders. Thus, they kept asking Christ for miracles because they had this idea that God provides miracles when he presents the truth. What do you think about that? He was presenting miracles. And he was. But not in that context. Do you remember every time they asked him for a miracle, did he give them one? No. Show us a miracle that you had When he was in Nazareth and he got up and read Isaiah in the synagogue. And after he read Isaiah, they asked for a miracle. Did he give them one? Couldn't do anything. In, in, in. So every time they wanted miracles as proof that he was the Messiah, it was not given. Right. It was part of his ministry, not proof of his ministry. Yes, he was part of the ministry, so he did have it, but it wasn't proof of it. Exactly. So think about what miracles do, and think about today. Is it a good idea? Is it wisdom to, to seek out miracles for confirmation of truth? Isn't that like level one, you said? I love what you're saying there. Exactly right. So do miracles increase thinking? Or do they tend to cause people to stop thinking and just accept based on the miracle? It's for the weak heart. So when Israel in Egypt were slaves, miracles were performed. What were the purpose of the miracles? And what level were the Israelites functioning at as slaves in Egypt? They were level one. And what were the purpose of the miracles? Bring them up. See, at level one, right and wrong is determined by power. The miracles were there to demonstrate that the gods of Egypt were powerless and the God of Israel was powerful. Simply and only basically that, to make a distinction, the God of Israel is powerful because they're operating at level one. And it says in Deuteronomy, I, I perform these miracles so that you might know that I am God. It was just simply to, to set him apart from all the false gods that have no power. Do miracles, however, differentiate truth from error? Can miracles be done in support? Actual miracle, real miracle, not, not sleight of hand, not magician's trick. Real miracle be done in the support of a lie. How about a serpent talking? If your dog or cat talks to you when you get home today, wouldn't that be a miracle? But does it mean what the dog or cat is saying is true? Now, we have an animal speaking in Eden telling lies, and we have a donkey speaking later on in Scripture telling truth. There's a lesson there. Animals can talk miraculously on occasion in support of the lie and in support of the truth. So don't believe everything here. <laughs> what about Jannies and Jambres? Remember Jannies and Jambres? These were the um, high priests in Egypt who came out and counterfeited Moses' miracles. When they threw this rod down, it turned to a serpent. And they threw their rods down, it turned to serpents. Now it's true, Moses' serpent ate theirs. Okay, but they were they were doing counterfeit miracles. What about if we see statues weeping? Does that ever happen? It's a miracle. A statue is weeping. What about people being healed? 
Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, says, If a prophet arises among you, or a dreamer of dreams, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder which he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, let us serve them, you shall not listen to the word of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Notice, you don't follow them because of miracles. You follow based on what's true. Matthew, Jesus speaking, if anyone says to you then, look, here's Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. False Christ, false prophets are going to appear and will produce great signs and wonders to mislead, if it were possible, even God's own people. Here's a, uh, a quote from one of the founders of the Adventist church, a book called Great Controversy, page 588. It says, as spiritualism more closely imitates the nominal Christianity of the day, it has greater power to deceive and ensnare. Satan himself is converted after the modern order of things. He will appear in the character of an angel of light. Now, did he already do that in history? Remember in the wilderness he came to Christ? Pretending and being an angel of light. And he actually performed at least one miracle there. He transported Jesus like you know, the Starship Enterprise, beam me up, Scotty, boom. It's over on top of the top of the temple. Boom. That's a miracle. Through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. This author says the sick will be healed, not the sick will appear to be healed. The sick will be healed. And many undeniable wonders will be performed. And as the spirits will profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church, their work will be accepted as manifestations of divine power. Notice these spirits, who will be false spirits, will also be promoting the Bible and claiming they believe in it. Interesting. The last great delusion soon to be open before us, Antichrist is to perform his marvelous works in our sight. So closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except by the Holy Scriptures. By their testimony, every statement and every miracle must be tested. How do you test them? What are you looking for? What, what, what is the barometer you will use when you see someone proclaiming quotations from Scripture, performing miracles, what then do you, are you testing with? Congruity with the character of God as you know it and the teachings as we know it, or what is in the Bible? So congruency with Scripture, understanding God's character, other things? The methods they use. If they're willing oh. to coercion, then... The, 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 what Eva's saying is huge. Huge, huge, huge. Methods that they use. Understanding God's design law, His character, God is never contrary to his own nature and character. So if they use coercive methods, God never coerces, never says, love me or I'll kill you. Because as soon as you say that, what happens to love? It's destroyed. Let none... Cher- By the way, that previous quote was Great Controversy 593, and this is um, the Messages, Volume 248. Let none cherish the idea that special providence or miracles, miraculous manifestations, are to be the proof of genuineness of their work or the ideas they advocate. If we keep things before the people, they will produce, if we keep these things before, the, the, the miraculous signs and wonders, if we keep these things before the people, they will produce an evil effect, an unhealthy emotion. 
The genuine working of the Holy Spirit on human hearts is promised to give efficacy through the word. The Bible will never be superseded by miraculous manifestations. What do you think about that? So how do we test every statement in miracle? By what? I would offer to you again the integrative evidence-based approach that scripture must be harmonized with God's laws in nature and science and how things are constructed and how our experience actually works. Yes? Isn't it the same criteria that we used to determine whether Ellen White was actually legitimate or not legitimate? And how do we determine that? By life, not by just what they say, but comparing what she said with scripture. So, yeah. But mainly watching and observing her life over a period of time. No, I, I love what you're saying. This quote I just read was from Ellen White. And did you notice what she said? We should or should not believe based on miracles. No. Should not. We should believe based on whether it's consistent with God's revelation in Scripture. Yet, did, were there some miracles that accompanied her ministry? See, I mean, that gives more genuineness to her ministry because she isn't actually saying, look at me because miracles are associated. She's saying, don't look at the miracles, look at the word. Yes? One other thing you quoted uh, Deuteronomy a while ago. Right after that it said in the um, NIV, it says, the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. So he allowed these prophets to even prophesy something that did come to pass and it said he was testing them where they loved him. Now, what do you think that testing means? What do you think that testing means? How do you see it? What lens are you looking through? If you look through the old imperial lens that we've all been indoctrinated with, it seems like God's setting them up to make a mistake so he can then punish them for it. It almost feels that way. You better be good or else. It almost feels that way. Except when you understand how your own character development really works. You cannot have a victory in your life You cannot be so settled into the truth that you can't be shaken until you've been faced with the error and you've rejected it based on truth. You've come to choose the truth over the error. That's why it says, Paul says in Romans 14, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. It doesn't do you any good to do something that is the right action that you don't actually believe is right and understand why it's right. And so the testing was to give them opportunities to recognize the difference so that they can grow up in their thinking and understanding of how reality works. It was for their maturing, not so that he could somehow have a check mark against them and put a gold star on their little record in heaven. This is um, Amazing Grace 107. Through the power of Christ, men and women have broken the chains of sinful habits. They have renounced selfishness. The profane have become reverent, the drunken sober, the profligate pure. Souls that have borne the likeness of Satan have become transformed into the image of God. This change is in itself the miracle of miracles. That miracle Satan cannot counterfeit. That is the miracle that we look to, to see a self-sacrificial life, a person who loves God and others more than self, lives honestly, truthfully, with integrity, in harmony with God's design. Monday's lesson 
is about how Paul uses the metaphor of soldiers and athletes to communicate the experience of the Christian. As you read uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, I want you to consider the applicable points to the metaphor. How do we take the metaphor, apply them to our experience? Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games does, goes into strict training. They do it to get the crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What do we learn from this passage? What are the lessons that are applicable? Do the athletes have a goal? Do you, in your Christian journey, have a goal? What is your goal? What is, the, what is your purpose in running the race? What are you trying to achieve? What is the prize that is set before you that you're trying to reach? What does success look like in the Christian race? What does the victory lap look like? Matthew twenty three eleven and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. Forever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Is this what the victory looks like? Do, are you striving to be more humble? Are you striving to be less noticed? Are you striving to give to others? You know, these metaphors are great metaphors, but they're so easily taken to promote self sometimes because in the Olympic games and these athlete athletic games they're never trying to help the other one win are they what is Paul referring to or talking about when he says he doesn't run aimlessly or he doesn't beat the air like a man beating the air what, what is he referring to what do you think this metaphor he's not running aimlessly he's not like someone beating the air There are so many side distraction arguments that don't have eternal weight and they're easy to get caught up in and become the issue. I think that's one element that can be there. Okay, I like where you're going with that. And what do you think? She she said, in other words, moving off the mark and spending your energy on something that doesn't achieve the goal. Specifically today, what would that look like? Yes. I think that the key to the goal in, in um, the world sense is um, glorifying yourself. And the key to the goal in God's sense is glorifying God. Well said. And so how in Christianity has, Christian, has Christianity itself, the institution of Christianity, been diverted from his goal? Does Revelation speak about fallen, fallen as Babylon the Great? Can, uh, a house of confusion. Is Christianity today a unified body of believers or broken into 34,000 different groups all arguing? Could this, this empty shadow boxing running aimlessly also be referring to forms of religious ritual that have no power to change the life? I work hard to do my penance, to make sure I, 
I participate in the right communion service. I'm baptized in the right way. I do the right rituals. I, I keep the right day of the week. I pay my tithe faithfully. I'm working hard, putting lots of effort in. But you're running aimlessly because it's a system of legal requirements under a legal system. Misunderstood. But following the law of God through Satan's viewpoint of God's law, an imposed system of rules with a dictator who's waiting to punish. Could it be religion without the knowledge of God and God's character of love is aimless and pointless? As I've said in other places, there's nothing much more dangerous in this world than someone on a mission for God who doesn't actually know him. Think about it. There's lots of them out there. What is he uh, referring to when he says he beats his body into submission? Is it some form of religious penance? Is it using a whip to flagellate? Is it cranking? There's, the, there's these devices of certain religious groups that they crank onto their, their legs and, it, and there's these spikes that go in and cause terrible pain so they can crucify their own flesh and beat their body. Is this what it's talking about? Or is it some aspect of disciplining self? Saying no to the temptations of the flesh, the carnal nature. Notice in 1 Peter 4, 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention, for whoever suffers in the flesh is done with sin. Would you like to be done with sin? What does it mean? Some versions say is finished with sin. What does it mean to be done with sin? And how is suffering in the flesh related? Well, think about it. If you use understand, the New Testament talks about a spiritual neighbor, nature and a carnal nature or a fleshly nature. If we say no to the temptation of the flesh, let's just give a simple example. One everybody can probably understand. A smoker who, who's convicted they need to quit smoking. They set the cigarettes down. Will their flesh begin to tempt them and they get cravings? If they say no to the flesh and don't pick up the cigarettes, will the flesh suffer? But as long as they say no and the flesh suffers, are they done with smoking? This is what it means. If we don't give in to the temptations of the flesh, we aren't participating in it anymore. We're done with it. And over time, that smoker who doesn't give in, what happens to those temptations over time? They go away. I think this is what it's referring to. So often the, the temptations can also be that they don't have to be things that we typically think of as sin. If you have, we can get trapped up in excessive work, we can get trapped up in excessive anything, uh, and timeliness. Um, so having that, having that relationship with God, being, having the goal being the heart transformation, and then him, uh, his character shining out through us. That walk will help to, to keep us on the right path and to avoid that. And it's a work in progress. I hesitate to say anything because I've you know, got a ways to go on that trail. Well, I think the number one root temptation yeah. below most of them is fear and insecurity. Yeah, exactly. It's fear and insecurity. 
fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of loneliness, fear of not having the rent for this month, fear of what people will say about us, fear of not getting the job, fear of fear of fear. Fear, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were That type of fear is an infection that was not experienced by Adam and Eve prior to their sin. Perfect love casts out all fear. When we come to love God and others, we aren't oriented towards self-protection. We're oriented to how can we bless others and fear goes away. And so at the root of most temptations is this self-preservation fear instinct. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 out of the remedy. Don't you realize that in a race... Even though that all athletes run, only one wins the race and gets the prize? Not so in God's kingdom. All who run may win the prize. So run the race in harmony with God's methods of love in order to receive the prize of reunion with God. Olympic athletes spend years in rigorous training. They work hard for a crown that will not last. But we do it to be crowned with the mind of Christ, which will last forever. Therefore I run hard with the purpose to win. I don't shadow box. No, I fight against self, surrendering my will to Christ and establish reason in governance of my selfish desires so that after having shared the remedy with others, I will not be overcome by a resurgence of selfishness and lose the prized unity with God. Tuesday's lesson, it, uh, the top section, the uh, top of Tuesday's lesson, it says, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What law must be Paul talking about here? And then, yeah, the lesson asks what what law we must be talking about here. And then the first paragraph says, in English translations of Paul's letters, the word law appears about 139 times, and in Acts of the Apostles about 20, 20 times. Paul endeavors to get his hearers and readers, regardless of cultural background, to understand that law carried several meanings, especially for Jews. Laws such as the Ten Commandments are enforced for all people at all times. But other kinds of laws in the Old Testament and the Jewish cult and in Jewish culture, Paul did not consider enforced for Christians. What do you think about this idea of the Ten Commandments being enforced? What does it mean? The Ten Commandments are enforced. What are they saying? How do you understand what they're describing here? The Ten Commandments are enforced for all people for all time. What's it mean? If you look through the imposed law lens, then it probably means something like this, that the Ten Commandments are enforced because they were instituted by the heavenly government and no legal action has been done to rescind them. Thus, they remain on the books or in force and God continues to police and punish violations of the law. I suspect that's how a lot of people view it. If you look through design law, though, we come up with something different. I want you to consider, metaphorically, Newton's first three laws of motion. First law, an object at rest remains at rest, and an object in motion continues at a constant velocity unless acted upon by an external force. Second law, the sum of external forces, F, symbolizing the equation F, on an object is equal to the mass of the object, M, multiplied by the acceleration, A, of the object. So F equals M times A. And the third law, when one body exerts a force on a second body, the second body simultaneously exerts a force equal in magnitude and opposite in direction of the first body. Now, with those three laws in mind, let me ask some questions. Are Newton's laws real? Do they apply to our lives today? Are they in force? 
Do they apply to everyone or only those who hear about them and choose to believe in them? <laughs> when did Newton's laws go into effect? Long before Newton. <laughs> Think that through. When does Newton's laws go into effect? Are they rules we must obey or descriptions of how reality is built to function? If Newton had not written them down, would that mean the laws would not exist and thus would not be in effect? Truth is truth. If we decide in committee to change the wording of the first law to read that, quote, an object at rest remains at rest until it receives permission from the proper church committee to move. <laughs> Committee's rule, come on, Jimmy. What happens? If we, if, we, if we change the wording to the law like that, does it make a difference to how the law actually works? Can humans change these laws? Are these laws, Newton's laws imposed, or design law? Newton did not create or enact law. He merely described laws that were already in effect from the moment God created the universe. The Ten Commandments are exactly like Newton's laws. They describe, but do not create, God's law of love. Just like Newton's law described, but do not create, the laws of motion. God's design law was already in effect before the Ten Commandments were written. But human beings with minds darkened by sin failed to comprehend God's design law of love. So God provided a distilled version of his law, specifically written for human beings in sin to help them see and understand that design law. Does this make sense? Does that help you connect that? The problem today with almost the entire world, however, because the whole world wonders after, yes, is it's accepted the lie that God's law is merely a list of rules imposed and operationally or functionally functions no different than laws that created beings make a system of rules that require external oversight and imposition of punishments for breaches. This is how the world views God's law. He's got a law. You broke the rules. There's a recording angel keeping track of all the breaches and rules. They're being stored up in the heavenly sanctuary. If you don't get the price paid by the blood of Christ, who goes in and erases it from the record books, then God will one day have a tribunal, which has started in heaven in 1844, and the judgment is now sitting, and he's going through the records and deciding who's been pardoned and who hasn't. And if you haven't had yours legally pardoned, then when he comes, he will give you the proper amount of punishment. And that's all based on the lie that God's law is no different functionally than human law. Yes? Uh, I get the design law that you just described. But, you know, we have the examples in history, like uh, uh, Hophni and Phineas and, and Uzzah, and all these who were in that system, and it, it had it related to God and His um, the laws that He gave for the sanctuary. I, you know, I can see where over time we get confused between design law and relating to God through the sanctuary and those examples in history. So before I explain it, anybody in the class want to explain, how do we understand issues like Hophni and Phinehas and Korah, Dathan and Byram and, and, and other people that, that were put in the grave in Old Testament times? How do we understand that? Was God punishing sin? Is that what was happening? I appreciate your answer last week where you talked about it being a theater, being a, a way in which God communicated with uh, man and, and this... this, uh, this play that plays out, you know, it was important to communicate 
how we relate to God, how we see God, how we understand God. These were the actors in the play, and uh, they, you know, went off script. Exactly. So if you're in a play today in, in Broadway, you're in a Broadway play, and you go out on stage and you decide to just do your own thing off script, what's the director going to do? Take you off. He's going to stop it. He's going to take you off. You won't be on that play anymore. You see this happening. These guys were going off script all the time. And when they went off script, God first tried to get them back on script. But when they wouldn't, he would take some of them out of the play. You can't be in the play if you're not on script. Here's the script. You have to follow the script. Because the script is designed to teach certain realities that we're to learn from. But it was not a means of salvation at all. Thus, you didn't have to be a participant of that system in Old Testament times to be saved. Think about the uh, widow that, uh, that Elijah stayed with. She wasn't a member of Israel. She didn't participate in the script, yet the miracles were performed for her and no one else in Israel at that time. Christ references it himself, pointing to her as someone who God blessed. But she didn't participate in the script. I think the average person... Or in the play doesn't see that distinction. You know, when we're looking at God's design law and we look at these examples in history and all right away we make that application that God's law is imposed. That's right. That's because we're looking through the imposed law lens. Additionally, going... And I think we're going to come to the death question here in a moment. The death question's in the lesson today. But those deaths are not punishments for sin. None of them. What is the punishment for sin? Eternal Eternal non-existence from which there is no resurrection. Nobody's died that. That comes at the end of the thousand years. Everybody, Daniel, rest in the grave, in the dust, it says. So did those people that we mentioned, Cordathan and Byram and so forth and so on. They're in the dust right now. They're coming up in a resurrection, either resurrection of life or resurrection of damnation. But the punishment for sin hasn't been realized yet. To put that and project that in distorts the events and draws conclusions that are not actually written there. So if the Ten Commandments are merely a description, like Newton's laws, why were they given? They were not enacting law, they were simply describing law. Why were they given? What were their purpose? That's what the people needed at the time. Why did they need them? Needed for what? For what purpose? Couldn't distinguish what sin was. They could. They didn't know anymore. They were so darkened. So this is out of uh, Romans not, uh, three nineteen and twenty from the remedy. It says now we know that the Ten Commandments are like a medical diagnostic instrument, identifying infection and exposing disease. It diagnoses accurately everyone who is infected with distrust of God, filled with selfishness and dying of sin, so that everyone who claims to be sin-free or is free of selfishness will be silenced, and the entire world will recognize their need of God's healing solution. Therefore, no one will be recognized as having a healthy relationship with God and being like Christ in character by adhering to a set of rules. Rather, it is through the Ten Commandments that we become aware of our sickly state of mind. This was given as a diagnostic tool to help us see what's wrong. Last paragraph, it says, With the moral law expressed by the Ten Commandments, however, matters are different. In his letter, Paul quotes some of the Ten Commandments and alludes to other, others as universal ethical demands on all people, Jewish as well as Gentile. Having writ- written against the practice of sin, Paul would not in any way have diminished the very law that defines what sin is. That would make about as much sense as telling someone not to violate the speed limit while at the same time telling them the speed limit signs are no longer valid. 
What do you think about their metaphorical example there at the end? Exactly. It's a very poor metaphor. This this is speed limits are arbitrary. If you go thirty five in a thirty zone, there is no consequence unless an external arbiter of justice finds you, captures you, and punishes you. It's ironic you're saying that in the college jail courthouse. Yes, because this is a this this courtroom is an arbiter of imposed law. God's law does not operate this way. And this is what exactly happened when the when the little horn power rose up and sought to change God's law. It sought to change the law from the design law upon which the creators built everything to operate, the law of love and so forth and so on, to this idea that his government operates just like ours. And when we look into heaven, we just see a powerful Caesar ruling, and, uh, ruling with authority and power and coercive pressure. This is Satan's view of God's law. Wednesday's lesson. In the middle of the lesson, it asks us to read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 12-22, in which Paul states that if Christ hadn't risen from the dead, then there is no resurrection for, for humans either, and that, um, but Christ has risen for the, from the dead, and uh, therefore in the future the dead in Christ will also rise again. Then the lesson asks, why is a proper understanding of death as a sleep crucial for making sense of these texts? That is, if the dead in Christ are already in heaven, what is Paul talking about here? Anybody, as you read this question, have any, you know, little... Thoughts jump up, little flares go off, like, whoa, there's just a little tweaking that needs to happen here? Did did, did it just go like, that's right? Did you see any concern? It didn't make a distinction between the temple of death and the eternal death. It it certainly doesn't do that. So how do we understand mortality or immortality of humanity? How do we understand it? Remember the metaphor, it's very, very, I think, and I've done this with a lot of non-Adventist Christians, what I'm about to share with you, and it's very easy for them to comprehend, and they embrace this this idea. Use the metaphor of a computer. The Bible talks about we're we're tripartite beings, body, soul, and spirit. Body, hardware, machine. Soul, Greek word is psyche, from which we get psychology, psychiatry, means your individuality, your identity, your personhood, software. The programming, what makes your computer uniquely yours. And spirit, Greek word pneuma, from which we get pneumonia, it means breath of life, energy source. To have an operational computer, you must have hardware, you must have software, you must have an energy source. If you have any two of those three, think about it, just any two, do you have an operational computer? And if your computer runs out of power, what state do we say it goes into? It sleeps. It's in sleep mode. It's not dead. It's sleep. Okay, And thus we understand now what is being described in Scripture when people die, they go into sleep mode. In response to the Sadducees, who were asking Jesus about the woman who married seven brothers, remember the story? Because the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in a resurrection. Okay, And... Uh, And so they were trying to trap Jesus with this question of whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am 
not I was, notice, I am, not I was, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. See what Christ is saying here? He's going, I am the God. Put that together with Jesus' statement that all who believe in him will never die, and you come to the point that Jesus is saying that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive today. That's what he's saying. They're not dead, they're alive. And I think this idea, what we read in here about the dead are not in heaven, has been poor communication on the part of the church. An error, not in doctrine, but an error of communication. Because we often communicate they sleep in the grave, don't we? I think it's it's an error. How can we describe it more accurately at death? And I've got some, some scripture references here for you. The body returns to dust. From dust you were taken, and dust you shall return. The body goes into the ground. The energy, the breath of life, goes where? To God. And the software, the individuality, the soul, safe and secure with Christ in heaven on God's heavenly servers called the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, if you question me on this, I know, you, I know some of you will, Let's look at Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Notice what he describes. It's quite powerful. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Is he talking about their resting for an afternoon nap? No, he's talking about what we call death. But he calls it asleep and grieve like them who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that, now notice this next phrase, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You notice in one passage, we have the dead coming back with Christ, but the dead coming up out of the ground. How does that work? Go back to your computer metaphor. Their individualities, their identities, their personhood, their soul, their psyche are safe and secure on the hard drives, the servers, the Lamb's Book of Life in heaven. Christ brings their individualities back, downloads them into new bodies that are coming up out of the dust of the earth like Adam's body did in the beginning, and breathes in the breath of life and they live again. They come out of sleep mode and begin operating again. And that's probably metaphor as well because that's the best that they had to be able to relate to any, any, anybody uncomfortable with that, that way of seeing it? So I like the idea, and I can tell you I've talked to non-Adventist folks, is, and when you put their loved ones who have died in heaven with Christ on the heavenly service, they're quite comfortable with that. They're safe with Christ in heaven. They're not comfortable if you try to tell them they're in the grave. And those that did not die in Christ? They're also on servers. <clears throat> And when the end of the thousand years happens, they're downloaded off those servers into new into bodies coming up out of the ground, but these are not perfect bodies, they're imperfect bodies. The servers are wiped or deleted. <laughs> There's no backup copies. Thus, when they die this time, and think about your own computer. You've got your computer, you've got your hard drive, you're working on it, and it's backed up on the cloud. Right? And somebody destroys your computer. You just go buy a new machine that's blank. You download from the cloud. You've got your computer. But if the cloud has been erased and your computer gets destroyed, there's no resurrecting it. 
no coming back. If you've actually been with someone at the point in which they die, this makes sense. And then, so one of the founders of our church in 6 BC, 1093, Ellen White wrote, Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substance that went into the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. Now, she uses the term spirit here. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God, there to be preserved. In the resurrection, every man will have his own character. God in his own time will call forth the dead, giving again the breath of life and bidding the dry bones live. The same form will come forth, but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again, bearing the same individuality of features so that friend will recognize friend. There is no law of God in nature which shows that God gives back the same identical particles of matter which compose the body before death. But notice where she places the individuality and identity. Not in the grave, with God in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Now, I know if I'd already proven it from Scripture. I gave that quote for all those Adventists who needed an Ellen White quote before they could believe the Scripture. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the problems, though, if we conclude that humans were given immortality in Eden? What are the problems with that idea? And this is the premise. Most of our non-Adventist friends have the premise, and they've never really understood or realized it's a premise, but they have a premise that in Eden, when God created mankind, in Eden, before sin, at that moment, he endowed them with immortality. Some part of them, soul, spirit, whatever one, can't die. It lives forever. What's the problem with that premise? What are the the very bad consequences that come from that premise? Well, the eternal hell is one of the the things, yes. And and and, And what are these premises, eternal hell and this other one, so what's happening in eternal hell? What are the immortal souls doing in eternal hell? They're, they're suffering for all eternity. Well, what does that say then about God? Either God doesn't have foreknowledge, and on top of not having foreknowledge, we didn't know that they were going to go astray. He doesn't, he's fairly naive. He didn't even consider the possibility they might. So we've got a naive, impotent God. Or we have a sadistic God who does know, and he gave it to him anyway. It really, really cuts right at the heart of God's character, this idea of immortality given in Eden. And it also contradicts so much of Scripture, and you know the Scriptures it contradicts. Like, why did he bar, send an angel to bar their way to the tree of life if they already had immortality? Why do that? They're immortal, so why bar them to the tree of life? And by the way, just in a little side, I had an individual tell me that barring to the tree of life was an arbitrary act of God using his power to punish them for sin as proof that God does use his power to punish for sin. (laughs) No, this was not a punishment for sin. This was a great mercy. Do you understand in a world in which characters are selfish that death is a mercy? Imagine today, just, just imagine if there was a tree of life, a fountain of youth that really kept people from aging and dying. And they could live for tens of thousands of years as long as they have access to it. Who do you think would control it? The righteous or the wicked? And what kind of world would we have? You see what I'm saying? Adolf Hitler's troops would have gone out and everybody would have had in their sack a little piece of fruit from the tree. And as soon as they got shot, they ate it when they're ready to go again. That army never dies, you see. This was a great mercy on God's part. It's not a punishment for sin. It was a way for the plan of salvation to be realized. But 
we also know the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God alone is immortal, wages in his death, that the gift of God is eternal life, and so forth. So on many scriptures that say this. Now, what are the potential then institutional abuses that occur when you merge two lies? One, God's law is imposed, and two, immortality of the soul. You put both of those together, and what happens? The church has authority to send individuals from heaven, excuse me, from hell or purgatory into heaven. If you have a loved one who's suffering in hell, you can pay penance. You can do great works of art. You can send your troops to war. You can pay us money. And if you do that, then we, because it's just a system of rules, your fine is being paid just like we pay our fine right here in this courtroom. That's what an imposed law system does. You have to pay the proper fine. You pay the fine to the church, then we can send your loved one into heaven for you. John Jo- Johann Tetzel was the Grand Inquisitor of the Roman Church and was known for his prolific sales of indulgences. He went around sermonizing on the terrible agonies that the wicked were suffering in the torments of hell, and then he offered his listeners the opportunity to relieve their loved ones who were being tormented, and he had the old saying, whenever a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory or hell springs. <laughs> and this is how the church raised money. This was one of the main points Martin Luther protested. The great reformer rejected this idea of the doctrine of immortality of the soul. Many Lutherans may not even know this, but I've got some quotes from Luther in here. It is enough for us to know that souls do not leave their bodies to be threatened by torments and punishments of hell, but enter a prepared bedchamber in which they sleep in peace. That was Martin Luther. Or Luther also rejected uh, the existence of purgatory, which involved uh, Christian souls undergoing uh, penitential suffering after death. And Luther affirmed the continuity of one's personal identity beyond death. In his small called articles, he, he described the saints as currently resided, quote, both in the graves and in heaven. That's what Luther described. Just like I read, the body's in the grave, their individuality is in heaven. This is what Luther believed. This is what he described. Just like what we read in Thessalonians. Questions? And I just want you to know that we're getting through the whole lesson this week. I just want you to notice that. Friday's lesson. Friday's lesson, question one. Paul avoided martyrdom by fleeing to Athens, the intellectual center of the Greek-Roman world. Then it talks about how he presented, uh, immediately went on and presented um, his uh, presentations to the, uh, to the um, intellectuals there in um, Athens. It says, at the same time, look how Paul... Uh, did not in any way water down or compromise the truth in order to reach these people. In our attempts to reach others, how can we be certain that we don't compromise the core beliefs? And I thought, well, that's a good question. So what would it mean to water down the message? Another way, what is the central message that always must be included? Would watering down the message, would it be watering down the message if we told people the truth about God, his character of love, his methods, designs, his war over his character and setting of the great controversy, our condition, our need for repentance and healing through the, the, what Christ has accomplished in our behalf? If we told all that, but we didn't share with him the beasts of Daniel and Revelation, would we have watered down the message? I didn't hear you. You told him it was important. If we told him all of that and we didn't tell him about the state of the dead, would we water down the message? If we told him all that and didn't tell him about the Sabbath, the mark of the beast, how about the heavenly sanctuary? We don't tell him about the heavenly sanctuary. But we told him all this other stuff. Do we water down the message? 
Could a person believe in the Sabbath, the state of the dead, uh, a certain teaching on the mark of the beast, the the heavenly sanctuary and Christ's ministry there, uh, the, the, the prophecies and how they're interpreted in Daniel Revelation and still not actually understand God as Jesus revealed him to be? Can and will people be saved who have the wrong understanding of those five elements that I just went? Will anybody be saved who doesn't love and trust God? Will anybody be saved who doesn't love and trust God? I didn't, I didn't hear you guys. Is that a hard question? No one. If you don't love and trust God, you won't be partaking of the transforming power of the Spirit. What about those who are saved that don't even know God? They still love and trust Him in their own way. In their higher power. It might not be with the same label, but they still are loving and trusting God. They love his methods. They love his motive. They're self-sacrificial. They love truth. They have people of integrity. The Spirit has changed them because they've been partaking of it. But they still love and trust God. The mercy element of not saving those who don't is also there. Because if uh, individuals that did not love and trust were trapped for eternity in uh, something that was very counter to them, it truly would be hell as it that's exactly right. And I don't know if we've, if we've and we, we mentioned this some, some months ago, but this idea of the first death experience, it is actually a mercy from God in so many ways. It is a mercy. You've ever, from, from physical misery for people who have terrible disease, from the torments of evil people. You know how this world is so blessed that Nero is still not alive today. And Hitler and many other people like this. It's blessed. And so God provided that as an escape of grace. It was an act of grace on his part in the context of evil consuming the hearts of men. This is why in the ultimate end, he grants those who refuse his reconciliation, heal, regeneration, recreation, what they what they ask for, what they want, what they voluntarily sign up for, and it's recorded in Scripture in these words, they beg for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. They don't want life. They want to not exist. And it's a very sad state of reality when people are so bent in character that they would prefer non-existence to eternity with the God of love. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you operate your kingdom on truth, love, freedom, that you love us so much that you don't coerce us, you don't threaten us, you don't pressure us, that you win us with truth and evidence. And then once we open our hearts, you pour out your spirit and take all that Christ has achieved in our behalf and reproduce it in us so it is no longer we that live, but you live in us, Lord. We ask for this transforming power. Let us live our lives to bring glory to you. And may you come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.